Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 12. We got a happy one today. <clears throat> Enjoy it because, well, there's 56 chapters coming, so no, nah, I'm kidding. Isaiah chapter 12, I would remind you, as I often do, this is God's Word, and because we have an infinitely wise author in the Holy Spirit himself, he wrote this with you in mind today. So God's speaking to you. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout! Sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. God, You've spoken in this reading of Your Word. Would You now please be so generous as to speak in its preaching? Give us the ears to hear, hearts to believe. Lord, would you please help us in our unbelief. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Very few authors in church history that you can basically say, if they wrote it, you should read it. And normally, even the best of them have something where you're like, it's a bit of a dud. Very few. One of those very few that I know of, J.C. Ryle. You've heard me use that name before. It's largely because I'm trying to teach you you should go read J.C. Ryle. Now, Ryle was a uh, doctor of divinity from, I think, Oxford, if I remember correctly. Um, brilliant uh, Anglican uh, back in several hundred years ago, uh, who kind of this rising star in the Church of England uh, preached the Bible, this genius kind of big brain mega, you know, thinker guy, who then kind of got assigned at the pinnacle of his career to become the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool, which at the time was one of the largest port cities in the world filled with uneducated redneck sailors. Well, the British version of redneck sailors. And you have this kind of genius mind that has to figure out how to connect and uh, speak to these uneducated, uncouth, kind of degenerate sailors. And so as a result, kind of his writings represent the best of a brilliant mind condescending and coming low and speaking in a way that people can read. Everything that I've read from Ryle, everything I think that's in print right now is worth the read. It's all good. Now, one of my favorite quotes from him is in a little pamphlet of his on parenting. Uh, the duties of parents, I think, is what it's called. It's absolutely marvelous. Uh, but he has a comment toward the beginning of it where he says something to the effect of, I would rather speak to a man about his sin 
a thousand times than to have to speak to him about his children once. Right? There's a good kind of practical, you know, down-to-earth kind of understanding of the world, isn't it? Because he understands that uh, we can hear about our own limitations, our own failings and everything, but oh boy, once you start talking about my kiddos, man, it's on then, isn't it? That's when fists are coming out or they're not having it. I think maybe perhaps, though, there's a new version of that today. Maybe today there might have to be a little bit of a correction of to say, like, I might want to speak to a man about his own failings a million times than to speak to him about his children a hundred times than to have to address the lies that he believes one time. It's been an interesting movement that I think we've watched in the evangelical church and even into, we're not evangelicals, we're confessional Presbyterians, but in the Presbyterian church, conservative Presbyterian church, where I think we're seeing an increasing commitment for us to believe what we think we believe at all costs. I think we're watching a kind of generation in the American church, even inside the Presbyterian church, that is getting increasingly hard, increasingly difficult to get our minds changed. It's interesting, the old King James, the way it speaks of church officers are those that are easily entreated, they're easily rebuked, they're easily corrected. And yet, I think it's increasingly common that we are committed to believing what we want to believe, to believe what we want to believe at all costs, and to believe it in the space or in the face of all the data against us. And I, I think probably our kind of moment in time in the news cycle makes this increasingly complicated, right? The conspiracy theories of three months ago were the truth of today. The truth of today are the conspiracy theories of three months from now. Everything is confusing. We can't figure out what's up and down, what's left and right. We can't figure out what's true and what's false. And so many of us, particularly the younger people in the room, are kind of like, I'm just going to throw up my hands and just trust whatever TikTok tells me. With bad counsel, don't do that. Don't do that. It's bad. Don't do that. The problem, though, is that where we run into situations where the Bible speaks directly to one of those falsehoods that we're deeply committed to, we then have to kind of have this moment in, in honesty and integrity and emotion where we're going to say, I believe this, and the Bible says this, which am I going to believe? Which am I going to believe? And some of us in here perhaps are wired a bit more like robots. Those that are a bit kind of more robotic with our emotions go, well, if the Bible says it, I believe it. Easy peasy. Okay, good. Good on you. The three of you, y'all won't enjoy this sermon. That's fine. The other 150 of us, okay, fair enough. This will be for us as we have to think through this. But that emotional moment of conflict where we come up against the Scriptures and realize the Scriptures are saying something about God or something about me that I don't like and I find very inconvenient. Perhaps it hurts my feelings. Perhaps it makes me uncomfortable. Perhaps it's a truth that I, I believe with my head but I kind of refuse to believe in my heart. And I'll let you in on a little secret. I've, again, been doing this now long enough, pastoring long enough to figure out that 
those kind of lies that we cling to so tightly don't show up that clearly when you're having a good time. Right? When life is good and easy and great, those lies get tucked away behind the joy, behind the delight, behind the victory, behind the happiness. We get so overwhelmed with the blessings that we don't realize the conflict in our thinking. But when difficulty shows up, whew, when suffering shows up, whew, when conflict shows up, that's when those lies in our heart are kind of suddenly painted out on the large canvas where we get to see this is what I actually believe when I don't have the prosperity of God covering over it. And suddenly, well, I've got some work to do between my ears. That's really, in some sense, where we are in Isaiah chapter 12. The book has been laying out the hard message uh, of the prophecy of Isaiah that God's people, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, have been trying to build their own kingdom. They're, They're not working with God. They're not on His team. They're not trying to ride His coattails. They're trying to do something kind of antithetical to what God is doing. They're trying to do it their own way. They want to be their own king. They want to be their own boss. Really, at the end of the day, they want to be their own God. They want it done their way. And the problem is they're not very skilled at managing their own lives. In fact, the vast majority of what they end up accomplishing is just downright sinful. And so we had those opening chapters of kind of the introduction to the book saying, look, judgment's coming. You are doing the wrong thing the wrong way, and judgment is coming. And Israel doesn't listen. And judgment's coming, and Israel doesn't listen. And in fact, we've now uh, even heard it said there's an immediate judgment coming for Israel. There's a later judgment, 140 or so years later, coming for uh, Judah, and both countries will be wiped off the map. What do we do? The suffering, the difficulty, the unpleasantness now begins to show kind of what our heart actually believes. What do we do? In chapter 12, I want to just briefly look at kind of four points through it that address in some fashion the lies that we tend to believe when we run into difficulty. I think all four are addressed in the text and things that I know that Israel likely would have struggled with themselves. First, it's so easy for us to say, well, we've run into difficulty, we've run into hurt, we've run into heartache, things are going badly, we're not happy anymore. It's easy for us to kind of, in the back of our heads, now, it starts quietly as a whisper and gets a little louder and gets a little louder until maybe sometimes we might even voice it in a a fit of anger or a fit of grief, but we'll say, well, God's just out to get me. He hates me. I mean, I know God's in charge of everything. I'm a good Presbyterian. I believe he's sovereign, and he's just out to get me. I'm running late. All the lights are red. Look, God's out to get me. Of course, that teacher would give the pop quiz today. God's just out to get me. Oh, my children or my spouse or my boss or my coworker. Oh, 
God's just out to get me. Now, the reality is most of us don't actually ever get quite so brazen as to say that out loud, which is why you chuckle, because you're like, I would never say that, but I know you've thought it. Many of you have thought it this week, haven't you? Don't admit that out loud, please. We do. We have that in our head where we go, well, I know God's in charge of what he's doing, but he must just hate me. He must not. Or, okay, maybe it's not that he hates me. He must just not like me very much. I mean, look at what he's giving me. How could he love me or like me and do this to me? And interestingly here, verse 1 answers that question, actually. What we have in chapter 12 is a prophecy Uh, At first reading, the first part of at least, feels like it's a prophecy that's answered when Israel's brought back into the land. That's how it kind of at first reading sounds. But as the chapter gets to the end of it, you begin to realize that no, this actually isn't talking uh, about the return to the land at all. This is not Israel coming back into Israel or Israel even coming back into Jerusalem. This is ultimately talking about the arrival of Christ Jesus. This is talking about the first and ultimately second coming of Christ himself. And what do we see in verse 1? In that day, this is what you're going to say. With the arrival of Jesus, people of God, this is what you're going to have kind of clinking around in your brain. Notice there's going to be an action followed by a real truth. Action. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. I don't really want to give thanks to you right now. Maybe it feels like you're angry with me. It feels like you hate me. Maybe you don't like me. Maybe you don't love me. I, I, I don't want to give thanks to you. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Why? Because you were angry with me, actually. <laughs> you, know, you were for real. But though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. There was a season in which you were angry, but it didn't, you didn't stay that way. Your anger didn't remain. Something changed. Now, this is an amazing thing if you actually stop to think about it because it makes sense for us to think about this from a human perspective. Because honestly, as humans, our emotions change all the time, don't we? We're happy, and then we go past our time to eat, and then suddenly we're grumpy, and we have no idea why, and then we eat, and suddenly we're happy again. And it's amazing how a simple thing like food can change our emotions. Or some of you in the room have the ability to feel two mutually exclusive feelings at the exact same time. I don't understand how you ladies do that. Us men cannot figure it out. It has never once made sense to us. How can you be happy and livid at the exact same moment? I don't get it, but you do it. You can, it's amazing how God has made you. But for us, always, our emotions are anchored within a timeline where we have some sort of kind of cause and effect and things grow and things change because it's on a timeline. There's progress. God's outside of time, though. So he is who he is all of the time which means when God is love, he's love all of the time. It's not like he's loving for a moment and then not for other moments. When he's angry, he's angry, all angry, because his anger's not in time. 
right? I might be angry for a season, but then I get over my angry and I'm fine. He's outside of time, so when he's angry, he's, he's all angry and all love and all joy and all peace. He is all, all of the time. So this verse is an intriguing thing because here you have the God who is wrath. Who is all angry with his people. Admitting that something changed. Something changed. Now, it's not him because he's outside of time. He doesn't change because he is immutable, invisible, God only wise, the unchanging God. But what it's highlighting is a circumstantial change. That the God who has loved us before the foundation of the world, the God who loved us before he made us, the God who has loved us before we existed outside, anywhere outside of his mind, provided a Savior to resolve his wrath against our sin. Now, it's important to know this God loved us. Now, when did he start loving us? When did he start loving us? I uh, was in Atlanta this week for the administrative committee of the PCA. I'm on functionally kind of the board of directors of the PCA and uh, got elected to that for a couple of year uh, stint. And in the opening devotion, uh, the gentleman, the stated clerk, Brian Chapel, asked a question, kind of a rhetorical question to the men in the room. When did you start loving your children? Did you wait until they were teenagers and they first said that they loved you? And you're like, ooh, finally, this kid kind of came into it. I love this kid now. Is that when you started? Anybody who's had teenagers was like, nope, <laughs> nope. I didn't wait till teenagers. Did you, interestingly even, did you have to wait until you saw the child? Right, you're in the hospital and they hand you the baby and you're like, oh, it's a potato, I'm so happy, I love this thing, right? <laughs> when did you love that child? Before you ever even knew them, didn't you? And it's one of the joys of kind of being younger in the room is that with the, the, the blessings of pregnancy tests and now with sonograms and things like that, like we can really develop an intimate bond with a child in utero in a way that those prior generations haven't been able to do. Some of you in the room are not young enough that you, you didn't have the ability to even know gender of your baby, right? And now we actually have the ability to have 3D printings of the exact shape of the face of our child so that we have names for them and joys that are connected, that we love them before we ever see them. And it's interesting that in verse 1, there's some kind of idea of this playing in the background that, look, the Lord has loved his people before we ever loved him. He loved his people before we ever knew him. He's loved us so fully that he is the one who's been committed to resolving his anger. He is the one who's been committed to resolving our sin. He is the one who's been committed to resolving all of our troubles. So that we will be able to say in the day of Christ Jesus, we will be able to say under the ministry of Christ Jesus, I will give thanks to you, O God, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. And interestingly, what is your relationship with me now? It is not one of anger, but one of comfort. You see, friends, and I'm about to go a little J.C. Ryle right at this moment. I'm going to step on your toes a little bit. 
When we get to that point where we're saying, perhaps God is mad at me, he, he hates me, he's, he's angry with me, he, he doesn't love me, he doesn't like me, he's being miserable to me. Friends, that is a pity party is what that is. That is a lie, it is untrue, it is the adult version of a temper tantrum. What you are doing at that point is you are clinging to a falsehood and you're exploding that falsehood to such a great reality that you're letting it define your understanding of the character of God. He must hate me because I got cut off in traffic. Wow! Interestingly, what does the Lord say about what he does in the ministry of Christ? He's resolved his anger so fully that I believe the way Jesus said it is, it is finished, right? Completed in total, it's finished, there's none remaining, it's been done, he drank the cup of the wrath of God in its entirety, there is no wrath left, the only thing that remains is love of God. And sometimes that love even taking the form of discipline to make our lives a little better because sometimes we're a bit slow to learn and a little bit hard-headed. His anger's gone. It's finished. The only thing that remains is love, and in fact, love so rich, so full, so abounding that he just wants to comfort us. Some of you have lived with families that resolve conflict well. And you know that moment in conflict resolution and in families that resolve conflict well where one party has been wronged. And it's, it's the most kind of transformative, overwhelming moment where even though they were the victim, even though they were the one that was wronged, they begin to comfort the one who wronged them out of love and affection and care and tenderness. And it's shocking when it happens. You're like, wow, you're the one that's supposed to be mad. You're the one that's supposed to be angry, yet you're taking care of me. Chapter 12, verse 1. It's that lie that we have banging around in our head that God doesn't love us, he's angry with us, he, he hates us, and we, like a petulant little toddler, throw our adult-sized temper tantrum. Well, okay, maybe we don't get quite that far down the path of petulance and pity partiness. I know that's not a word, I don't really care. Verse 2 addresses really a different set of lies that we tend to believe. And this is where it's a doubt not so much about whether or not God loves me, whether or not it's his attitude towards me, Verse 2 begins to address the issue of competency, right? If the first one is his character, is God actually loving towards me or does he actually hate me? Verse 2 begins to address competency questions. Okay, so he loves me, but is he very good at his job, right? Maybe he loves me. Maybe he's just a buffoon. Maybe he's just bad at being God. Maybe he has no idea what he's doing. I mean… Maybe he's just dumb. Now, again, nobody would ever say that out loud. But we think it, don't we? Where it's like, what are you doing, man? 
What are you doing? How can you think this is a good idea, God? How can you think this is what you're doing? Now, notice what verse 2 does. It corrects the lie that's rattling around in our head. Behold, right? Anytime you hear that word, you're supposed to shake your, no, don't really shake your hands, but let it catch your ears. It's the reading version of an exclamation point. It's supposed to be said loud so that it gets your attention. Behold, God is my salvation. There's your statement. He is my salvation. And the consequence of it is that I'm going to trust him and not be afraid. And why? Because he's my strength and he's my song and because he's become my salvation. So you have kind of bracketed on both sides. God has saved me, therefore I can trust him and rest in him because he saved me. Brackets on both sides to help correct my broken little brain that says God is incompetent. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not any good. And it's like, he's already saved you. He knows what he's doing. Stop freaking out. Be at peace. Stop worrying. He's God and he's good at what he does. I mean, you might not think so, but you live in one moment in time and space in one tiny little city in one tiny little state in one mm, large-ish country in one tiny little continent. Like, who are we? Who are we? (laughs) I mean, you think about all the things we don't understand about our world about our life, about our government. Who are we to ever critique God? And yet here he is saying, look, I've saved you. You can rest, friend. You can rest. You don't have to be quite so uptight about your life. Be at peace. This famous Welsh preacher, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a medical doctor before going into pastoral ministry, another one of those names that if he's written it, you should read it. But he has an excellent book called Spiritual Depression, which uh, first time I read it, it was a low point in my life. I kind of hit kind of spiritually a really hard time. This is, I don't know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And I uh, was like, well, this will be helpful. And turns out that's actually not the book's about at all. <laughs> um, oh, still good, not what I was intending to read. But he really interestingly deals with how to deal with Christians who are constantly grumpy or constantly anxious. And that's actually, he kind of steps on your toes and says, look, if you're one of those people that's constantly grumpy, constantly grumpy, or constantly anxious, you're wound so tight you can't relax, at some point, it comes back to the fact that you don't actually believe God's word when he says you, that he is your helper, that he is your salvation. That's amazing if you think about it. The reality is just these two verses. First, God declaring that he's no longer angry with us. His wrath is satisfied in Christ Jesus. But then two is that he has accomplished our salvation in Christ and will be our helper forever. You think about how much of an improvement even the New Testament represents over this verse than even what Isaiah could have understood. That Jesus would live that life, would die that death, would be raised to life again, and then ultimately even ascend to glory so that salvation is accomplished. It's not like part done, it's done. I have been saved, you have been saved in Christ. 
But then even beyond that, to think that right before he leaves, what does he do? It's better for you that I go away. How is it possible? How is it, how in any world is it possible that it would be better that Jesus leaves? How is that possible? Because interestingly, what happens is Jesus leaves from being there externally to send them the Spirit to be there internally. You realize Jesus lived with his disciples, but he lived outside of their bodies. He lived next to them. But when he leaves, he sends the Holy Spirit not to live next to them, but to reside within them. And interestingly, what's the Holy Spirit? What's his title? He is the Holy Comforter the one who brings peace and rest. It's interesting. We have two major lies being corrected here, don't we? God's out to get me. God's not any good at his job. This is awful. Well, the third one, and this is, again, where the kind of temper tantrum, the pity party kicks in. And I mean, again, you would never say this. I've heard it thousands of times. Well, what has he done for me lately? I mean, honestly, how has God helped me? Like, what... He's not doing anything. He's not helping me. Have you seen my life? He's not helping me at all. Well, verse 3 and 4 actually address that lie. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is, again, an exile reference. I mean, an Exodus reference, but it's, uh, it's if you're a, a participant in the salvation of God, if, if you're in Christ, if you have what we would later kind of say, the Holy Spirit, if you are saved, if, you are, if you're a true Christian, you will receive the benefits of salvation. And what are the benefits of salvation in that day? Verse 4, you'll say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Why? Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. There's, there's this idea here of the history of what he's done. That if you actually stop and think about it, if you actually reflect on it, your story, every day of it, to get to this place is a story of God's miraculous care. I mean, the various ways that He's protected you and watched over you, the various things where uh, He's saved you from bad decisions, right? That one time that you turned out in traffic and didn't look left, right, left, you just looked left, right, and didn't realize that the dump truck was coming and they actually happened to be in the far lane and not the near lane. Whoop, that was it. You didn't know. Maybe sweaty hands afterwards, right? That cold chill that starts at the back of your neck and goes all the way down to the base of your spine because you're like, that, ooh, that was almost it. If I'd just gone one lane over, that was the end of it. That was, the, that was my time done, finished, fine, over. How many times that you don't know that you've been in the presence of death itself and the Lord's provided His angels to protect you Maybe that one time you had to go to the bathroom and it got you out of a situation that you had no idea would have ended your life if you had stayed. You see, that's actually one of the really fun parts of uh, the Old Testament, but one of the things that can make it a little bit difficult for us as New Testament Christians to read is it's like they tell the same stories like 1,700 times. I mean, you read it in Exodus and then you read it in Psalms and then you, they just, it's like they keep talking about it. Like, man, would you ever stop talking about this? And then you go, oh, wait, that's actually the lesson, isn't it? 
A little slow, but I got it this time. It's intriguing that really that's the lie I'm telling myself is like, what has God actually done for me? He hasn't done anything to help me. He's not taking care of me. He's not watching out for me. But if I would just stop and go back and tell the stories, tell the stories, those stories, my stories undo any grumble or complaint that I would have. Some of you need to spend some time remembering when you became a Christian and the the miraculous way he ordered those people to be in your life at that exact time, in that exact moment. You would think, that could never happen any other way. Some of you need to go back and remember the change that you had when you became a Christian. The way that it's like overnight, some problems just went away. Not all of them, but some problems overnight just, just gone. And some of us, we don't remember the days where we became Christian. Praise God, I'm one of those people. I have no idea. Could have been saved in the womb. I have no clue. But I can go back and I can remember those moments in sanctification where it was like my brain finally understood something and everything changed afterwards. We need to be those people that are busy telling our stories. And I shameless, like, pastoral plug at this point. This is what flocks at home is designed to be. It's designed to be an opportunity for you to share those stories. How did you become a Christian? What kind of church were you converted in? Right? Some of you have really crazy church stories in your background. Right? There's some really weirdo church stories in here that are great fun to listen to, but you don't know that if you don't ask. And you don't get opportunity for them to be able to say, look, God preserved me. I shouldn't be here. Look at how he brought me here. Again, it's so easy for us to forget and to be grumpy. They're like, what is he doing for me lately? You get a little different when you have kind of literally miracles within the last two years in your life and you have that kind of daily experience. Like, I really shouldn't be here. But he's taking care of us. It's not as late as I thought it was going to be. I'm just going to, it's good. I'm going anyways. I'm not listening to you anyways. The fourth lie and the last one. This is uh, not that long, actually. The lie that we tell ourselves is, well, I'm all alone, right? I mean, it takes various forms. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat some worms. That was the way that I was informed of it when I was a child. Very formative song in my life. If you don't know that, I could share that with you later for your spiritual edification. But we all have that kind of variation in our theme, though, in our brains, don't we, where it's like, I'm all by myself. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. Nobody's taking care of me. And it has to be said like that, doesn't it? And the intriguing thing is, again, the prophecy defeats that. Sing praises to the Lord, for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known. Where? In all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And you're like, Michael, you missed this point. I don't see it. Well, you're right. Actually, you don't. In English, it's a trick because it's actually in the Hebrew. This is one of those weird times I'm going to go kind of grammar nerd on you. Uh, The first part, verses 1 and 2 are written in the singular, I, masculine. 
Then verses 3, 4, and 5 switch to the plural, and then verse 6 switches to the singular feminine. What's being done grammatically here, interestingly, is all of the people of God are being represented in this prophecy because we're all being brought in together. Corporately, we're being enfolded that look all together, sing praises to the Lord, all you people. Why? Because He's done glorious things for all of us together. Why? Let this be made known. Where in all of the earth? Because together we're doing this. We're all together. It's interesting, verses 1 and 2 are really the only ones that are dealing at the singular level, the individual level. Verse 3, come all of you that are enjoying the benefits of salvation. Verse 4, together we have the stories of God. Together we have His work together. Verse 5 and 6, we have His work together. Therefore, let us praise together. We are not alone. And interestingly, what happens at the end of verse 6 is together we live with him. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You see, people of God, even if you feel alone, he has not left you because he cannot leave you. And he will not leave you because he cannot leave you. Because he has pledged that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you alone. So even if all the people forsake you, your God never will. Because he can't. Because he dwells in your midst. Now, I love that. That's fulfilled in Christ becoming man. But not just in Christ becoming man, but even in the Holy Spirit being given to his people. That we have the Spirit of God residing in us. Right? That's how our confession technically puts it. That we are united to Christ. How are we joined to Christ? The Holy Spirit joins us to him in our effectual calling. That's the the Holy Spirit's task. To unite me to Christ and to do so from the inside out, it has to be the worst job of the Trinity, really, to live inside my head. Awful thing. But it's intriguing how really, now we're presented with the application, aren't we? Now we're presented with the real conundrum. What do I do? Because I have the lies that make me feel comfortable. God's out to get me. God's not very good at his job, that he hasn't helped me recently and that I'm all alone. Or I have what he tells me he is. God who loves me, whose anger has been put away. A God who loves me and helps me because he saved me. A God who loves me and has continued to work in my life from before I was born even to today. A God who loves me and has brought me into his people and even into his very presence. The challenge becomes, which one am I gonna believe? And this is where it actually, I think, gets really hard. Because honestly, where the choice is, is the comfortable one that makes us miserable or the true one that makes us uncomfortable. (laughs) The comfortable one that tells us lies or the uncomfortable one that leads us into new life and new joy and new hope in the scariest and best of ways. 
I would encourage you, actually, I know there's some of you in the room, and I, this is a pointed application. There are some of you in the room that are like, Michael, I want that. I'm tired of believing the lies. I just don't know how. I don't know how to stop. It's like I don't know how to stop breathing air. I don't know, I don't know how to stop doing this. How do I start? And I would say a couple of things just very quickly. One is it begins with repentance. You need to have a conversation with God where you throw yourself at his feet and say, I'm sorry. I don't even know how to change, and I don't even know what change looks like. I'm sorry. Please help. That's your starting point. Second from that is to start paying attention to the thoughts in your head. And most of us don't like to pay attention to the thoughts in our head because they scare us. But pay attention to the thoughts in your head, and every time you hear one of those lies, begin to say, no, he loves me, and I know it. Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. If you start with those two things, repentance with an ask for help, and two, to start clinging to the truth that Jesus loves me, you'd be amazed at how far you can get with that. Is it going to solve all of your problems? Not yet. But boy, it'll get you a ways down the road, won't it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to our failings. In many ways, that's, I guess, not terribly hard because our failings are constant. They're always there and they're big. But thank you that you speak with tenderness and kindness Thank you that you speak with love and affection and care. And Lord, we do together admit this is hard for us. We don't like to give up on the lies that we believe. And so we ask that you would forgive us for our sin. And we pray, oh Lord, that you would help us in our unbelief. Many of us in here, we want to believe We just don't know how. And in our weakness, would the Spirit be strong, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.